Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to former sports science coordinator at the Miami Dolphins and New York Mets and current performance consultant, Dave Regan. Thanks for tuning in to episode 238 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Dave Regan to the podcast today. And just before I do this little intro, I just want to say a thank you to Joe Club at the Buffalo Bills for making this introduction. So I was speaking to Joe and asking her who would be good to speak to on the other side of the Atlantic, or at least the other side to me of the Atlantic, who may be able to give a really nice perspective on working in US sport. So Dave, as we'll, as you'll find out in the uh, in his introduction, worked the Miami Dolphins and the New York Mets. Four years the Dolphins, one year the Mets. And he's now removed from that um, that environment. So he's able to give a really good kind of bird's eye view of his experiences. And because he's not in the thick of it, a little bit freer to speak about what went on at the Dolphins, what went on at the Mets, without repercussions of getting the sack. So it was a really good chat with Dave. I had an absolute blast. He's a great dude, um, great to speak to, and you'll 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 hear on the episode how much I'm laughing and, and actually enjoying speaking to Dave. So it's a really good overview of his time in the US, what they're doing at the Dolphins, how that changed with different leadership, what they're able to get done, what they weren't able to get done, and also the same in the environment um, in baseball at the Mets. So I'm sure this will be uh, an excellent episode. It is an excellent episode, which I'm sure you'll love. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by I Measure You. So I Measure You is used by leading biomechanist researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. So I Measure You recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor and app for lower limb load monitoring uh, and helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So unlike GPS, AMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load and works via two very small synchronized high frequency tibia one sensors which quantify three things. The intensity of each step an athlete takes, precise left and right lower limb asymmetry and cumulative tibial load. So IMAGU is now part of Vicon and works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world. So if you want to get more information and know more about IMAGU, head over to the website imeasureu.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at IMAGU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Dave Regan. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this morning, I am delighted to welcome Dave Regan to the podcast. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks for having me, mate. It's a real honor to be on. Uh, as I said previously, you've got me through many hour runs where I thought, should I keep running or just head to the elbow room? So uh, that's a little pub up on Fort Lauderdale <laughs> right on the beach. So thank you for getting me through so many runs. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. So before we get going, I want to say... Um, Thank you to Joe Club for making an introduction between us two. And me and Joe have been having a little chat because it's always been a real challenge of mine to get people on from the States who are involved in in the big um, big organizations, NFL, NBA, um, baseball, etc. And I think it's probably something that I've struggled more with in the US than it is in with in in Europe, and that's for various different reasons. And that's you know not me having a go, but that's just the reality. But when I said to Joe, do you recommend anyone that is that is in that environment? She obviously passed me on to you because you've been there in two of them big sports, but have, have moved away and moved back home. Yep. So it's great to get you on because hopefully we can have a real um, kind of honest and open discussion with no. No organization or, or GM hanging over our head waiting to, to listen and, and find out what you've said. So no, I'm really looking anyway. forward to the this. because didn't it... even know my name. So uh, no, just, <laughs> just kidding. No. Hi to Chris Green. Great man. No, <laughs> no that's great. So it's, it's super, I'm super excited to get you on and have a real chat about what it's like on the inside of them organizations. So I've given you a little bit of an intro already, but anyone that doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a bit of a... Uh, a background on yourself, what you did before going to the States, what you did in the States, yeah. and what you're doing now. A bit of education as well along the way. Yeah, no worries. So, uh, you know, growing up in Australia and things like that, um, kind of went down the, the normal path. Most people who are interested in uh, sports science and, and elite performers do and um, did an exercise science degree. Um, and when I finished that, always had yeah, a strong desire to be involved in uh, the elite industry, but also knew that it was pretty hard to get in. At that stage, I was very lucky um, to be involved, you know, on a very, very small level, but still, you know, a part of the Port Adelaide Football Club. And that's where uh, some great people, Burjo, uh, Rondo, guys who are really now leaders in the industry um, were, were, were involved. Um, so I was basically a utility steward where, you know, when they were on the eastern seaboard, I'd go to the games and help out any way that I could. You know, it might be out picking up the jerseys after a game, helping the property steward. Um, a couple of times I had to test urine with the old uh, eye refractometer, which was just one of the more uh, eye-opening jobs where I realised that if you shut it too hard, it splashes everywhere and you get piss all over your face. So that was, uh, <laughs> that was probably a real – that's what they don't teach you at university in those courses is uh, some, some of those finer techniques that you've got to learn. Shut it very, very slowly. Um, and then um, kept working with Port Adelaide all the way through and then started doing my master's part-time. I actually started doing school teaching uh, just – as a way of making money and, and I have a real passion for school teaching too. I come from a teaching background with my parents and so I was doing my master's and working with Port Adelaide and then my brother was also involved at Catapult, uh, the GPS company. So really got a very uh, high level exposure with the GPS units and Catapult, working with Mike whenever I could, basically just riding his coattails and trying to suck up any information that I could. Um, because I think I really had that interest in strength and conditioning, but also in the sports science aspect. And 
just looking at the industry personally, I thought it was important to have a kind of a, two couple of strings on the bow, just not be a sports scientist or be a strength and conditioning coach, trying to, you know, make that gap connect uh, or, or get rid of that gap. So um, was teaching, was working as much as I could with Mike and with Port Adelaide and then uh, all of a sudden Mike said there's a job at the Dolphins, you know, put your resume in and see how you go and, yeah, mate, that basically started the, the very incredible journey that I've had over the, the past five years of working in America where I got to work um, as the sports science coordinator Originally, I was the sports science analyst and uh, kind of got a couple of promotions along the way. I don't know how. I think I bribed the right people and then got into the sports science coordinator with, with the Dolphins, was there for four years and a position opened at the Mets in 2018 and, and moved across there and, and held the same title in the New York Mets, which is the Major League Baseball team over there. Uh, and then at the end of Last year, I was very, very fortunate to find out that my wife is pregnant and she'd been an incredible source, uh, you know, of support and also, um, you know, just kind of like strength really through the moving process and being involved there. And we, we decided for the family that it was probably important to come home and be around family. So now we moved back in December and, and you know, just because of the timing and things like that, I'm back teaching and hopefully, you know, we'll be back on board somewhere next year. Lovely. So what was the difference between a coordinator and an analyst? Well, I think when they had a look at my analytical skills, they realised they were they, they didn't warrant the term uh, analyst and, and people go to university for four plus years to become a high-end analyst of data and things like that. So it also occurred because we had a director of analytics there, Dennis Locke, who was a PhD lecturer at Iowa State, uh, incredibly incredibly intelligent man and my role originally was really looking at the ins and outs of the numbers and and to be honest that isn't where my strength is I can do really good z scores I can do uh, some base analytics I can use R but to find the real powerful kind of relationships that that we originally wanted to deal with and 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 change training based upon personally I didn't feel comfortable and and Dave Poloka, who's the head strength and conditioner at the Dolphins, you know, he was also wanting and enthusiastic to get me on the floor as well with the the strength coaching aspect. So moving from more of crunching the numbers, looking at the GPS, creating reports to establishing, a, a, a you know, a battery of tests that we would use, collecting the information, putting it into a uh, you know, a condensed form of information that Dennis would then look at with the direction of me. So I, I might say, Dennis, look, I want to have a look at our D cells compared to our X cells. Like what's the ratio we're doing there? What are we doing compared? If we compare that to training and practice, is there something there that may not be, you know, a statistical way that I would think about it, but you can identify. And, and we were extremely fortunate that Dennis was there because we got so much fruit from maybe some things that I just didn't have the the real analytical background to, to filter out. Um, so that was the real difference. My coordinator role was running, implementing and organising the battery of tests that we did, collecting that data and condensing it. And then Dennis would start doing the analytics, which is originally what they thought I would be more doing when I came over. Yeah, I understand. So 
let's dive into the the, the dolphins straight away. Um, when you when you arrived, obviously we've gone into the, the the kind of role that you took up and then kind of progressed from as a, as a program in terms of the the stuff. Maybe I'm going to chat about the staffing structure, but in terms of the program, the SNC program, the sports science. What did that look like when you first went in? Because that was what 2014. Yep. Yeah, so look, it, it yeah. Was, so, what did that look like in at that time? In terms of staffing, or more what they were doing? And yeah, in terms of the, what they were doing, I guess the staffing may may come into it, but yeah. it'd be really interesting to see what what was going on at that so time. So, really, it was more they they had just acquired GPS units. So, when I got there, they had 2013 with GPS, and I think they had maybe 15 units. And the staff consisted of Darren Cryan, who was the head strength and conditioning coach, and Dave Poloka. And then they had two interns straight out of college. That was the staff. And Dave Poloka, who is, you know, I'm probably, you know, biased, but one of the one of the best strength and conditioning coaches and operators in the industry was basically assigned at doing the GPS. And, and it was taking up a lot of his time and he wasn't being – uh, on the floor as much as he would like. So I came across and that was it. It was just GPS uh, when I originally got there. What what makes you say that Dave was is one of the best that you've, that you've come across? What qualities did he have to give him that title? <sighs> Number one is knowledge. Um, I think also yeah. who, he, who he trained with. I think he, he trained with Mike Boyle a lot and got a lot of coaching, but then also coached with Mike and – um, that that's one aspect of it, his knowledge and his his understanding and the way that he implements um, his programs is second to none. But then his logic behind why he did things, when he did things, how he did things was also you know things that you you get taught all of these things in university and you come out and you're a little bit fresh, a little bit green, and you don't necessarily understand the intricacies of good programming. Uh, and and just the way that he would you know structure his lifts and when he would do things it was it was fantastic and then finally his coaching you know highly intelligent man I think I think he used to work on Wall Street um, I think where he was in in finance and things like that he got out of it and um, yeah just the way he coached and his knowledge and the way that he could cue was yeah what I learned the most from him really. Mm-hmm. So in the early days when you had 15, 15 uh, GPS devices, what kind of information was being pulled out of that and how was how was that affecting the program kind of 12 months into actually having that technology? Yeah, so look, and, and that's when I came over. It wasn't as effective as it could be. Um, I think they, they did it well where they split up the units amongst the positions, but it, it, they were getting base information in and a lot of those reports that, that Catapult would print out itself were basically all that was being used and and very basic um and no no offense to to anyone there i'm not trying to be disrespectful but it was it was um just because of time allowances turnaround things like that it was it was just all right this is what we did you know it it was more um descriptive where when you really want to get that sports science and things like that and this is what dennis taught me was that you know you want to be predictive not descriptive a lot of the time and that's probably where they were at they were um yeah probably a little bit more in in that descriptive phase this is what we did this is how much we did which is great at the start but it needed to be 
built upon to really try to give it some fruit and some direction and, and, and have some of those wins that you can have. On the back of that, how did that progress with your involvement and yeah, more technology and better understanding? Yeah, so so basically in that in that first year I was there, we went from the fifteen to I think we got maybe fifty five units. So the way the NFL works is during the training camp you have ninety athletes. So we equipped the the, the main players that we knew that were probably going to be there. We equipped them with the units. And we got a lot more information coming in. So not only did it allow us to have a look at, okay, what are our first stringers doing? You know, what are our second and third stringers doing sometimes as well? Um, so, so we got 55 units and that gave us a lot more information. And from an analytical background, it gave us a lot more of a sample size. So we could really start to run some of the predictive measures. So, um, you know, we, we started looking, for instance, sake at uh, decelerations purely uh, because with the CBA, certain parts of the year, players can't line up opposite one another. So our wide receivers and our defensive backs, what we found from game information across the four years is that they have a higher amount of decels and accels. Now, obviously, the wide receivers do that because they have to break in and out of routes. Um, defensive backs have to do that because they've got to change direction and respond either to the type of scheme that they're playing or what their opponent is doing. Uh, and what we found out was that our prescription or what was occurring during practice was completely short, well and truly, of what they were doing in games. So we weren't preparing them the way that we should be. And, you know, it, it was really, it was kind of a win because we started implementing a lot more um, deceleration work in, in, in that 2014-2015 season. We, we really hit the guys hard with it even through the season where we, you know, and we learned things along the way. We, we kind of realized that that deceleration work has an impact and we, we had a couple of knee niggles, like some, some tendinopathy and, and, and things like that coming up. And, you know, that was something that we learned from. But um, we, we had 55 GPS units. Um, we started doing hydration testing and I can tell you there's nothing sweeter than waking up at about – 4.30 in the morning, getting to work at 5, setting up a table with uh, polystyrene cups and listening to the sounds of an NFL player while they uh, go to the bathroom. And, and then the smell that comes with it is just, <laughs> oh, you know. It, it, it's I, what I, dreams I, are made of. I tell my wife, uh, that, oh, mate, and you think you have a look at what they eat and, and you see them coming in and you're like, I know you had four plates of bacon today, you bastard. <laughs> and sure enough, uh you know, you're having to leave the bathroom pretty quickly because you, you, you actually can't breathe because it's so thick. But we started getting hydration testing in and I think that was a win because it educated the player. That was a really easy thing that the players understood that they could they could affect straight away. Like you are dehydrated, go and drink some water. And, and we would do that at five in the morning and they would get – initially they were very, very sceptical. They would – watch me test the cup and then they would go and take it themselves and tip it out. And, you know, we can, you know, understand why with all the testing they go through. Um, but they were very, very sceptical. But they really got on board. And then that also helped the coaches because it was something the coaches could understand. 
You know, you, you start saying to the coaches, you know, he's had 25% of a decent decel load that, that he would have during a game. They kind of start to look at you and go, okay. But if you go to him, hey, player X is dehydrated, they would hit them hard during meetings and they would even make them go and get bottles of water. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that, that was good. And then it allowed to try to retest the guys who were dehydrated. You know, we'd say, look, come back in two hours. And, and, and it allowed them to see that they were, you know, progressing as we would want them to. Um, so, sorry, yeah, I've probably waffled on there for a bit. I apologize. No, that's fine, mate. Yeah, that's... We, we, GPS and hydration. Yeah, no, that's really good. Um, one thing I wanted to dive a little bit deeper on was a deceleration work that you increased. What did that look like on the field and did that transfer into work in the gym that changed things based on the demands of the increased deceleration work? What did that look like? Yeah, so, and, and look, that's where Dave, it was really good working with Dave because he was open and he understood. So, and no disrespect to some strength and conditioning coaches in, in America, but but some of the stories I've been told with people who have come into a position similar to me and trying to work, it hasn't gelled. Um, so, you now I go to Dave and even Darren Crime when he was there was really receptive. And, you know, we talk about it and then it wasn't up to me, which – you know, I was probably lucky. It gave me a chance to really learn where, where Dave and Darren would then have a conversation and they'd implement, you know, certain drills that they'd do. So it might be a whole team decel drill where, you know, they had to break down within a certain phase or it was it was added into, like you were, you were saying, sorry, it was added into certain aspects of the conditioning that we did outside of practice. Um, so we normally got like a 45-minute conditioning lift type of period when they were on the field. Um and even sometimes we, you know, we would we would add it on, or we have the ability, and and hopefully I'll come to this later. But we started to predict what they should be doing at training. So I'd be on a walkie-talkie to Dave and say, "Look, he's a little bit short of axels, decels, or high-speed yardage," and then he'd go to the player and say, "Look, you need to kind of make sure you hit the straps in a couple routes and things like that." And then he'd get back onto me on the mikey and um, the walkie-talkie, and he'll be like, "Yeah, he's hit it," or hey, you might need to go and have another word to him. But, yeah, so so we'd make sure that there was no overlay within the in, in the weight room and we would normally add it into the conditioning or uh, preparation phase that was done prior to a lift. Mm-hmm. The prediction, that was that was based on your own numbers because I know that Catapult now have got their, um, it's the, I think they call it a predictor, but drill database where you can pop in the numbers based on the uh the time and the 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 effort and all that kind of stuff and it'll give you a, a predicted output is this before this came about and this was yeah, based on your own yeah. numbers okay yeah yep yep so so dennis and i worked together and we did it for so it was good once we started getting a lot of information in there um we, we kind of put two levels on it. So if it was a player that we'd never had before and we didn't have 15 sessions or more for that specific phase that we were in, we would say, all right, let's just give it a positional average. Um, so they would get assigned the positional average for, you know, whatever we're doing. So, and, and we got really technical in that aspect. We started having a look at individual uh, periods. So, the way that NFL works is that they have their training session and they break the training session up to minute periods. It might be a one-on-one team, individual, special teams. It, it is so strictly formatted and actually t- 
time for time basically outline that we had that ability to say, all right, we've got seven minutes of individual, we've got seven minutes of team one-on-one, we've got seven minutes of team run PAP. So I'd enter a script and then we would formulate in our, uh, you know, an estimate of the high, medium and low for each player. And then at the end of certain periods, I would check those and then get on the walkie-talkie to Dave. And we'd normally look at player load for our big guys because obviously they're not going to be covering huge amounts. But if we can see that they've had a little bit more movement in that unit, then okay, is there something that they feeling all right? Is there been a little bit more contact? You know, are they actually moving a little bit more inefficiently? Um, and then with our skill-based players, we'd, we'd hit a lot of the, the speed-based metrics on them and, and total volume. What was compliance like as you... Yeah, no, absolutely. What, what was compliance like as you moved across them four years <laughs> and and, and uh, obviously more people getting GPS units, more data being generated, more tests being had, more monitoring? What was compliance yeah. like with the players? Yeah. So initially, like I got told very, very colourful ways that I probably didn't understand to go and rearrange myself. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, they were, you know, you had your wins, you had to pick who you did it with. And that's the other thing too. Like I would say at most times we had 85 to 90% compliance. But NFL is very different to baseball where you had the ability of saying, put this on and they would do it. Now, that would involve a lot of legwork for us. I'm not going to say it was perfect. We had everyone putting on their GPS units. It would involve the interns, myself, going through the locker room, finding where they'd either A, hidden it, or B, where they'd thrown it on the ground, taking it out to them and and saying, put it on. Um, now, that was the first two years. It got 10 times better. Like we had, you know, no issues. We actually had guys come up and say, you didn't put my GPS in the locker. And you'd be like, yeah, I'm just fixing a couple of things here. And they'd come and get it from you. Um and then you had to figure out workarounds for guys who were, you know, douchebags. Like you had to say, all right, well, you know, he doesn't want to wear it. That's fine. Why? Well, I just don't want to put it on. Okay, how about I sew it in your jumper? Fine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we, we got it that way. Um, it, it was hard. And there's, there's a lot of things. Like the hydration was hard. You know, at, at, at one point we had, just to rattle them off, we had Kitman, GPS, uh, Team 2, uh, heart rate, hydration, force plates, gym aware, mega wave, wellness, RPEs, vision training, precision hydration. At one, at, at a two-year block, we had that running um, and it was too much yeah. and we learned very, 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 very quickly that the players resented what we did. Um, but for, for all in all, if you made it like kind of like digestible for them and they saw, okay, this is why I'm wearing it. I'm getting this information. Um, you know, it, it was great. So we actually started sending out text messages after a training session. Uh, so we worked with the IT department where we sent out automated text messages where, you know, it had a category of like wellness, um, RPE and GPS. And then each one was like basically a, uh, a grade not a great as in like they're doing well, they're not. It was like, okay, based upon your results, you got an A, which means you're working above in everything. So that would then send out a text message saying, based off your wellness, your RPE and what you've done at practice today, we really want you to make sure you get X amount of, you know, uh, Gatorade, water and try these two 
recovery techniques. So we'd send that to each player. Um, and, and that really helped compliance. Out of them number of technologies that you were using, you said that was too much. What got, what got dropped? What got binned? Uh, Kitman, Omega Wave. Uh, we still did vision training. That, that wasn't as invasive. Really, we finished off with GPS. Heart rate, we sewed into the shirts. So we made them wear either the bra or the compression shirt. We gave them the choice mm-hmm. and we sewed the heart rates into the actual shirts and we just said, look, the shirt has to be on skin to skin. And then the guys who resisted, I said, look, why don't you want it? And they said, I don't like the shirt. So I was like, okay, would you be willing to wear a strap? And 80% said, yep, that's fine. And look, they wouldn't wear it every time. You'd have to kind of pick your battles. And then you'd also have the, the wellness questionnaire was great because I do that in the morning and you really get an idea of how they are. So it kind of give you, okay, do I even bother saying put on your heart rate or do I just say, look, have a day, that's fine. Um, so we sew that in, force plates, hydration, wellness RPE is what we finished off with. Cool. So it sounds like you had quite a bit of influence of what was going on, but I know we, we chatted before and certain changes in the organizational leadership affected how you went about and did things. Just want to explain what you meant by that and how you tried to have influence in certain scenarios that weren't optimal for you guys. Yeah, so so initially uh, we had a head coach with Joe Philbin who is uh, an incredible man. You know, he, he was he was a, a kind of what I got used to in Australia and, and what I kind of thought a coach was. Uh, he didn't necessarily have the success that you would hope and, you know, that's a whole host of reasons. But with him, we had the ability to go to him and say, Look, do you know in the first three days of training camp, you hit the guys with the most volume of the after they've come back from a month off where they've probably hit the DR and or they've headed down to Miami and they've maybe trained for the last two weeks. And and Joe was so receptive, you're like, all right, well, what do we do? And he really kind of gave us um, the freedom to make suggestions that he would either agree to or be like, no, nah, I'm not doing that. And um, that's where Dave had a really good relationship with him and, and, and just allowed us to do that. So we had a whole team approach we would speak at team meetings we would have 10 minutes in a day where our sports science initiatives would have to get done before anything else occurred so we really started having this influence over the team uh, and the way that structures were certainly done and then unfortunately with joe he didn't kind of get um the success that i think he deserved um or the treatment um and and, and he left and then we were left with an interim coach was very receptive, but you kind of started dealing with the coaches who weren't as receptive or the players. So at one point, you know, we, we came up with just a simple way of giving coaches a sheet where they could see players who were running high and players who were running low. And if they could just flip the two players, so you kind of balanced out the load. And at one point, because of the way that the roster set up, the um, running backs constantly have a lot of load. So of a 90-man roster or in-season of a 63 roster, you've normally got five. So there's no way to disperse that load. So I went to the offensive coordinator one time and said, look, mate, they're all running higher. Is there a way we can reduce their individual? And he just looked at the sheet and he goes, point blank, look at me at the face. It's about 9 o'clock at night. I want to get home. And he's like, what are you telling me? And I'm like, well, they're all, you know, they've, they've done a lot of work. And, you know, if you want them fresh, maybe do this, this, and this. And he goes, so do you think I should just get more wide receivers in? 
uh, sorry, more running backs. And initially, I thought he was joking. So I was like, yeah, that'd be great. And he was like, you're a dickhead. And I was like, okay, I've no, I've probably not read this situation very well. So left the room very quickly, up between the legs and uh, <laughs> walked off. But, uh, you know, you started dealing with that. And then when we got the new coach in, he talked to players and obviously there was some, some feedback about the fact that we had too much influence. And I, I know we're right. You know, we, we really went from zero to 100 because of some of the wins that we had. And I think it was a good thing. Um, and, and, you know, I was probably a little bit dejected and, and, you know, like, well, fuck this, why am I doing it? And it was, it was Dave who kind of said to me, look, mate, you gotta, you gotta get over this and, and figure out where you can have your wins. And, and it was fantastic because from that point, it really changed my mindset of, I'm going to have this macro effect on everything to a micro effect. How can I help each individual player? Um, and, and we really hammered out really good recovery protocols. We started getting, uh, massage therapists in, um, we had a float tank, we had plunge pool, we had uh, hydration policies, we had uh, you know sleep help, we had anything that we could think of that would give them the edge, um, that would be one thing. And then Dave and I would also talk about, okay, maybe someone's a little bit fatigued, you know, just giving you a heads up and then Dave might alter the lift in a simple way of dropping a couple of sets or, or changing the loading scheme or, you know, that was really his neck of the woods and, you know, I would doubt or whatever he said um, just because of his knowledge. But, um, yeah, it, it, it more became on that sense. And, and that was that was a real challenge, but it was an important challenge to learn in that, you know, based upon force report, is there a way that we can alter the conditioning like we're going to give someone? And that's what we started doing. When they jumped on the force plate, if we saw that there was, you know, a, a decrease in, in, in an eccentric kind of like temple measurement, you might say, let's go and have a conversation. Is he stiff? Is he sore? Okay, well then let's alter what we're doing with him. Um, and and that kind of allowed us to do that. And that became really powerful after a game with certain players who had a very professional approach. We would get them on the force plate normally three times a week and we'd have a look, A, how their jump on the Sunday was, sorry, on the Monday compared to their Monday norm. If it was this, uh, we would alter his conditioning slightly. Um, and then we'd have a look on a Wednesday to see how that recovery hopefully had occurred. And then on a Friday leading into a game, is there any small tweak that hopefully we can give that will get him in a great state for Sunday? So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Dave. I hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, he discusses his time at the Met. So what I've tried to do with this episode is split into two parts, as always. But part one was introductions and time at the Dolphins. And part two is his time at the Mets and some some kind of bird's eye views of his time in the US. A few reflections to uh, to finish off with. So a really interesting uh, part two coming with Dave, which again, I'm sure you'll enjoy. So just before we get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So Fatigue Science have exclusive access of the SAFT model, which is an algorithm developed by the US Army. And if you listen to my episode with Ian Dunican, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So the SAFT model analyzes uh, a number of different factors in your sleep history to predict your fatigue for the day ahead. So the alertness score indicates fatigue predicted effects on your reaction time, your lapse index, your mental output, all, all things that are obviously essential for the performance that you're going to undertake that day. 
So as you can tell, it is much more than a sleep tracking device. However, it is a sleep tracking device. But not only does it track sleep, um, it considers the time you went to sleep, how well you slept, how much sleep debt you have, and even your local sunrise and sunset times. So a really impressive bit of kit is the ReadyBand from Fatigue Science. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, head over to their website, uh, fatiguescience.com, but also follow them on Twitter, at Fatigue Science. So I just wanna, I, I don't wanna run out of time and, and, and miss out your time at the Mets. So I want to move on to that that year that you had there. How did that differ in terms of in terms of the impact that you guys could have? I know that changed a lot of the dolphins between you guys and having quite a lot of impact to, like you just mentioned, you know, figuring out where you could. How did that change the Mets and and what was the buy-in, the compliance across the board, really, in terms of the SNC, in terms of the just the general cultural aspects of baseball? What was that like for you making that move? Oh. Mate, it was night and day. It really was. It was. Oh, it was. <laughs> it was actually really confronting at the start. Like you kind of, um, you're waiting to get involved. You're waiting to be a part of it. And look, I didn't get there at probably the right time. Um, I got there at the end of spring training, just with the interview process and things like that. And they've got a great department. They've got you know, Jim Cavallini. They've got Michael Mayne. Um, They've got a lot of great people there at the moment who are starting to lead that. But when we got there, it was kind of like what I was experiencing in 2014, but with a organisation, not sorry, not the organisation, but the league that had a lot more handcuffs in place. So NFL, the CBA, you have a lot more power with what you can say and can do. Um, but with the MLB, they're... they're Players Association is, is very powerful. And, you know, I think I think if you had a mix of the two, it would be fantastic. But um, they kind of really hindered what you could do. So compliance was completely down. Um, you had to get players' consent, written consent, that they would do certain tests. You couldn't make them do them because of the way that their contracts and arbitration works over there. So compliance was really down. We, we started off very basic with hydration and force plates because that's where we really thought we could have the biggest effect. And even hydration was very hard uh, and, and we had a lot of people not doing that at the end of it. The force plates is where we really had a win because that initial feedback that we could say, all right, you are feeling really bad the, the, the factors that we're looking at, so I would normally just break a counter movement jump in the force vectors, uh, sorry, force variables and time variables and just have a look at that. I would pick three variables that I thought related really important and if I noticed that there was anything off in terms of force or time, I'd have a look at why and if it was eccentric, we might just do something as simple as changing a back squat to a trap bar deadlift with a drop at the top just so there's no eccentric loading. Things simple as that. And that gave us a little bit more of a win. Um, But the compliance was terrible. Not terrible. I shouldn't say that. Very sorry. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So so is that that just a cultural thing? Yeah, I really think think so. There's there's some... Yeah. Yeah. You have a look at baseballers and and they're victims of... There's there's no wrong or right party. They're, They're victims of the CBA. They're victims of the schedule. And then they're probably 
victims of themselves. Um, so I think that made it very difficult to really have some wins that we would have liked. The, the, the funny thing about that is they're very worried about hydration scores and all of these types of like feedback that we can we can get from them. But what they don't realise is that really the data that's being used to assess them is collected without their consent or not because they have a look at averages, they have a look at pitching breakdown, they have a look at injury history. All of that information is accessible to teams. So I think it's a naivety on one aspect from the players and particularly their managers. I think managers get in there and get in their ear and say, no, don't do that, don't do that. But then the way that their contract is sort figured out at the end of uh, their kind of like team control period is they go to arbitration and an independent person goes agree or disagree. So any information that team can use to lower the cost of them, they will use it. So the players try to prevent that from happening. So why, given what hydration testing is going to actually tell you, why were they so worried? <laughs> what, what did they think was going to happen? Because as soon as the club collects that information, they can then use it. But surely just a bottle of water sorts that right out. Oh, and, and look, that that's part of it is that the club wouldn't use it. That you know They really did have the best interests at heart for the players and that's why we were brought on. It, it was just that initial, we need to kind of get past this initial resistance and then push forward. But it's just, it's a, it, it's a little bit of naivety on the athlete's you know, account, unfortunately, I would say. Um, but, you know, it, it's kind of like American sport is fascinating and, and particularly because I think of the way that they come through the college system. I think sometimes you definitely get exposure to performing against the most elite talent, but I think it also develops a sense of entitlement, which can be really negative in the long run for their development. I hope I've worded that politically correct so I'm in a lot of trouble. <laughs> you did very well there, extremely well. So in terms of the S&C side of things at the Mets, what was it, was that was that a similar scenario where you had to cover that with, you know, contractual stuff and agreements and all that, you know, or, or were they were they bought into the the benefits of strength and conditioning? Yeah, look, I, that that was a good thing. They definitely understood strength and conditioning. I think there are parts of the strength and conditioning program within baseball that are nowhere near as 21st century as they should be because they're on the road and because they play 162 games over 180 days your schedule is hell and you might be finishing a game at one o'clock and then you've got to come in and be in there by 12 if you want to get a lift in and and you can see why that falls at the wayside we there would be some form of compliance where we would go and say you need to get a lift today and they'd be like okay now that lift wouldn't be the best. Now it's not horses for it's horses for courses too. You'd have some guys who were in there every day, like Noah Syndergaard. You would have to say, "Get out of the weight room, you meathead." Whereas other guys would be on the old uh, recline, leg press, texting, and you'd be like, "What are you doing?" But as dumb <laughs> as it sounds, getting them in the weight room and maybe getting three sets of some type of weight on their legs was a win. Um, you know, I, I wanted to blow up the recumbent bike. The fact that we had a recumbent bike at a professional organisation, I was like, what 
is this. But uh, <laughs> hey, we we got some people on Amazing. the flight, so that's a win. Yeah, yeah. Small wins along the way to get them change the habit, <laughs> get them know, in the mate. gym. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes I just want to get them <laughs> off the bike. <laughs> Amazing. So, into obviously, baseball's got a big tradition of. Um, of, of data on the on the playing side of things yeah how were you how how did that how did you fall into line with that side of things with this the scouting the recruitment the the big data what what we're all kind of yeah sold uh, on in terms of baseball were you involved in that at all uh look not really uh to be honest with you okay. that, that they had very intelligent people who were, were doing that aspect where i tried to incorporate that was trying to speak the same language when I go to managers or when I go to the front office and things like that. So uh, working particularly with pitches was where I focused a lot of my time on and that was trying to create some type of normal fluctuation that we would see in a lot of the vectors we get. So you get, for example, release height, release angle, spin rate, velocity, uh, horizontal release height. So you could get a fair idea of their, their mechanics at point of release and hopefully that would then provide us with some information in terms of fatigue um, but in terms of making decisions in terms of talent ID and things like that look not only didn't I have the time but I personally I just don't think I had and I'm not, not trying to make myself sound like an idiot here but the intelligence um, if, if, if that makes sense I just don't think I had you know, that, that really in-deep knowledge with, okay, this is how we can use a random forest analysis to determine whether he's going to be the best pitcher against a 3-2 count with a left-hander, with an umpire whose uh, plate zone normally grows as the innings goes. Like, that's how in-depth that analysis was. Yeah. And you could didn't see anything you just said. That's fine though. Yeah, mate, but that's the thing. Like, I, <laughs> at the start, I came in and they said, oh, mate, we can go do this, this, and this. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, I was just wondering if I could get how quick he threw it. And they're like, oh, you're an idiot. And then uh, I think they kind of washed their hands on me. This Australian dude, he's just talking, he's just like, yeah. he's living 100 years ago. Oh, mate. And I honestly think, like, so I read this book before, I think it was by Jim Albert. It's called Baseball Analytics. And I read this book before I went in there and I'm like, all right, at least I'm not going to sound like a complete moron. So I walk in there and I'm like, oh, g'day, mate, how you doing? And I was wondering whether I could get this, this and this. I'm trying to think, you know, can we do this and have a look at fatigue? And he's like, oh, we don't use that stat anymore. I was like, what? And he goes, oh, no, no, we use this, this and this. And I was like, I don't understand what you've said to me. And you could just see, he just, he kind of said, oh, I'm not talking to you anymore. So I actually got put to uh, his intern. So I actually had to liaise with his intern from then on, which, you know, I'd probably appreciate it. You know, like I went from Dennis, who was this superstar who I loved and we could get along and help me out so much to, you know, probably not enjoying the relationship I had with the analytics guy. And that's that's probably one point that I would, if I could, if I could say something to, to myself and I'll start, I'd say be friends with the analytics guy because he will make you look 10 times better. So just to just to round up, I want to give a, and we, we've chatted about it quite a bit anyway. But just in terms of a, a bit of an overall picture, having been in that environment for five years, four with the Dolphins, yep. one with the Mets, 
coming away, where do you think, where's, and this is a horrendously broad question, but where's US sport going in terms of the adoption of sports science? Look, I think because of the resources and the money, they're, they're, you know, they'll surpass. I think realistically, and please correct me if you, if you disagree and things like that, I think Australia, New Zealand, England, you know, uh, you know the Netherlands, places like that really have got their teeth and they're the leaders in what we do. Have I forgotten one there, do you think, Rob? Um, just say Europe. Europe, yeah. Good just point, Europe, yep. Tell anyone. Bloody Australians. Got the, got the French, oh, the Spaniards. Oh, I've got the Spaniards. Yeah, absolutely. Crap. Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, if you yeah. can edit that, mate, I'd appreciate that. But if not, I'm an idiot <laughs> and uh, hola to all of the Spanish listeners. Um, We're all- we're all good. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, baseball particularly, from, from the difference from when I left the Mets to what they're doing now and, and the way that they've had that buy-in is increasing. Um, but I also think there's, you know, there's a real danger where I'm trying to think, I think it was Lachlan Wilmot who put a post on social media where it was Jimmy Ratcliffe standing at the back and it was a quote where Jimmy Ratcliffe, it was Oregon celebrating the Super Bowl, and it said something like, strength and conditioning coaches should be, I can't remember what it was, but it was insinuating that we, should, we shouldn't be on the podium. You know, we, we, we need to have more of a background model. Um, and I think that's the danger is that, that we come in and we make all of these promises. And that, that's where I worry in the US. It's, it's going to get a huge amount of, momentum it's going to get a lot of buy-in but all of a sudden a lot of the false promises aren't going to be delivered on and and a lot of the really important work and important things that we can do is going to get lost and and i suppose that's where i think it is heading it's definitely going to get a lot more exposure it's going to get the investment that it deserves but you know i think there's that concern that it might go like a pendulum you know I always worry it's, it's a swing of a pendulum. Everyone's brought in and then all of a sudden we'll go back and we'll be like, nah, it hasn't done what it promised to do. So who's who's making these promises, Dave? Where do you think the promises are coming from? Do you think the promises are coming from sports scientists themselves trying to generate interest in their own field to produce more jobs? Is that coming from tech companies that are, in, that are trying to influence the, the higher echelons of the organization? Yeah. Where, where's that coming from or both? Or maybe other things. I think, I think there's probably a little bit of both. I think definitely tech companies might the way that they can sell to, and it may, and it may not even be, um, you know, like a, a a a mischievous way of doing it. But I think when they a lot of the times tech companies in America will sell to GMs and coaches, not strength and conditioning coaches necessarily. And I think what that means is there's just an art of like the, uh, the the science gets lost in translation. So the GMs and the coaches get bought in with these buzz phrases, injury prevention, uh, you know, like you know, make your athlete quicker, th- things like that that we can do in terms of making your athlete quicker. But injury prevention, you, you know, I don't know whether you can or you can't. I definitely know you can reduce the likelihood of injuries, but prevention is another thing. But they get... They get bored on this thing and they get fixated and then they come back and they say, look, this, this and this, what do you think? And you're kind of, you're kind of hamstrung there where you, you can't deliver on these false promises that sometimes the tech companies are made. And I think sometimes there's also 
false promises that are made by people outside of the industry uh, who don't work in it anymore. And that then causes, you know, well, he's done this for 15 years and, and then he did this for five years, 25 years experience in this and he's making these promises that, you know, that, that aren't feasible, particularly because he's not ingrained within that culture and the demands day to day, if that makes sense. I think, you know, some of it is trying to get in there. I think some of it's definitely the tech companies and, and the lost in translation aspect, but then there's people outside of it who make these claims that you're just like, that's, I, I can't see that happening. So last thing to ask you, and I think you've touched on this already, what would you do differently if you were going to head to the uh, States now compared to what you did maybe when you first joined, went to the Dolphins or first went to the Mets? Uh, I, just the way that we attacked the use of technology, I, I just would have been more strategic in the way we did that. We just got too excited. And, and, and you know, that's not it, – it wasn't a negative. We were in – the environment, we were excited, we were enthusiastic, we were having really good wins, we were starting to change things for the better and we just got our head of steam up and that was probably just some inexperience and some naivety on my behalf and, you know, hopefully I would never do that again and I, I think I did that with the Mets and the Mets, I think it's unfair to say what I thought of my experience there because I didn't have enough time to really get ingrained in the culture. There's some unbelievable people with the demands that are placed upon them. I think I would have loved another year there. But, yeah, it's it's more just, you know, really invest the time getting to know the athlete as well. I think that was the one thing that, that was a win and that's what I would do again. I think that's important as well is use the questionnaire times or use the times that you are on the floor with the athlete to get to know them so you can read them and really use the interpersonal skills to strengthen the, the, the data collection and things like that. Lovely. Good way to finish. So anyone that wants to ask you any questions about your time over there, what you're doing now, anything we've chatted about, yeah. what's the best place for people to get in touch? Probably my email, mate. And like if you want to whack it in, the, the, the thing that you normally whack all the emails in, which I've used to get in contact with a lot of smart people. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So whack that in, steve.f.regan10 at gmail.com. It's not very inventive. My original email was disco underscore Dave, and I thought that was cool. Yes. Okay. I love these. I was yeah. talking about this the other day with someone who, like your old school um, oh, emails man. that you on AOL or MSN or Hotmail, absolutely class. Disco Mate, Dave 69 had, at hotmail.com. Yeah, he was, was, was a fiend on AOL to <laughs> chat scene. It was bad. I had a mate who had hotmail at hotmail.com, and I thought that was the, oh, the, nice. the best. Oh, nice. <laughs> he's the hero at school but um yeah. yeah thanks mate really appreciate you coming on and, and giving us a, a unique insight that we probably haven't had before someone on the inside who's been on the inside who's who's not anymore so really appreciate yeah. it mate and um mate, we'll chat soon. hopefully a waste of time absolutely not no perfect thanks mate no worries mate Thanks for tuning in to episode 238 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the very informative and very entertaining episode with Dave Regan. So big, a big thank you to Dave for giving up his time, having a little chat and reflecting on his time in the US. But also big thanks to IMSU, to Hawking Dynamics 
and to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So if you haven't pressed subscribe on your chosen podcast player and are enjoying the content from the pod, please make sure you do and it will enter your podcast app when it gets uploaded every Thursday morning UK time. So thank you very much for your support and I will chat to you next week.